the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Deason. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is this week? Well, what the hell is going on is we are in a battle royale in the national security world behind the scenes while everybody's focused on uh, counting uh, votes in Georgia and other places. Donald Trump is counting troops, and he thinks we have too many in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, and Somalia, too, by the way and uh, was making a big push to get down to zero before he leaves the White House. And uh, he seems to have pulled back from that. We have about 4,500 troops in Afghanistan, and he's agreed to reduce that to 2,500. And then we have about 3,000 troops in Iraq, and he's agreed to reduce that to 2,500. He basically cut the troops in Afghanistan in half and a small reduction in Iraq. That is a walk back from what he really wanted to do, which is go down to zero and I don't understand why the hell he's so anxious to get to zero, but it's not going to happen. Well, I was going to say what's wrong with him, but I realized that would take more than this podcast. So so <laughs> let's talk about this. Let's take the devil's advocate position for a second. We've been in Afghanistan for 19 years. We've been in Iraq for 17 years. We've been in Syria for almost 10 years uh, on and off. None of these places has given us much joy. Certainly in terms of the investments we've made, you know, Syria, less so, but let's say Afghanistan and Iraq, we've made all these investments and they're still, what's the foreign policy term I'm looking for here? Oh yeah, a shit show. Why is Donald Trump wrong? Well, so here's the thing. The reason that Donald Trump is wrong is that we're not there in the levels that we were before. We are not there doing nation building. We're not even fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan, really, at this point. The Afghan security forces, there's about 300,000 of them that are doing that. We have now countries with friendly governments that are allowing us to keep our boot on the neck of al-Qaeda and ISIS. First, the terrorist network that attacked us on 9-11 and then would still like to attack us. And second, the terrorist network that would love to eclipse al-Qaeda and be the next one to attack us here in the homeland. So what we're doing there with a very, very modest investment of personnel is keeping them from becoming safe havens for terrorists, which is the reason we went in in the first place. And that part of the mission has been, despite many twists and turns and mistakes along the way, been very successful. So we got the Biden administration coming in and you've got Joe Biden, who's, you know, literally gotten everything wrong from almost everyone's perspective when it comes to Iraq. He supported the invasion, then he imposed the surge, and then he supported Obama's withdrawal, which led to the rise of ISIS. So literally he's gotten everything wrong, <laughs> no matter what your perspective on, on Iraq is. And, you know, he wants to withdraw too. And so I would understand if we had 100,000 troops in both countries and saying, why are we there for so long? I would understand if we had 50,000 troops in each of these countries. We got more troops in Italy than we have in either one of these countries. And the troops in Afghanistan and Iraq are actually doing more on a daily basis for our national security than the troops in Italy are doing because they're going and whacking terrorists. So they can't come kill us here at home. I understand the desire to draw down our mission. I understand the desire not to be 
in an endless war with the Taliban and trying to build Afghanistan or Iraq into, you know, Jeffersonian democracies. But whacking terrorists, that seems to be something that everybody supported. You'd think that, wouldn't you? Um, it would be nice if that were the case. But of course, that's not the case. And I, I have to say, part of the everybody, reason It sounds why... like everybody agrees to the opposite, because both right. Biden and Trump want to pull out and get down to zero. Right. But, but here's the problem. And this is really where we start talking about dereliction of duty on the part of our national leaders. This started under Barack Obama. It continued without uh, abatement under Donald Trump. Our commander in chief, who so enjoys the pomp and circumstance of that title, is completely uninterested in talking to the American people about the mission that we face. When you don't talk about the mission, when you don't talk about why our troops are there, when you don't talk about what it is that we face and the risks that we face in their absence, then of course everybody's going to say, you know, I want my boys and girls home. And I completely get that. But in fact, this is a, an unvirtuous circle that has been created by our national leaders because they are feeding off of their constituents and their constituents are feeding off of the fact that they have no idea why we're there. Well, that's right. But I mean, 100 percent. But I mean, look, when I was in the Bush administration, a week didn't go by where the president of the United States didn't report. And of course, it was a very different point in both of the wars there where he didn't go and report to the American people on the progress on the ground remind them of the reasons why we were there and ask for their support to complete the mission. And then Barack Obama came in and he didn't want to complete the mission. He wanted to get out. And so he stopped reporting to the American people about the threat, about the dangers. He agreed to a surge briefly in Afghanistan, but as our guest Jack Keane uh, will soon tell us, didn't fully uh, fulfill what the commanders needed for it. So it failed. And he pulled our troops out of Iraq prematurely, which led to the rise of ISIS and a terrorist network that has carried out hundreds of attacks in hundreds of countries around the world. And it took, you know, a decade to beat them back down and take them out of their caliphate. And then Donald Trump came in and basically was same, indistinguishable in terms of what he wanted to do from Obama, except that he was going to knock out caliphate first and then get out. So he never reported to the American people on the importance of the mission. So for two administrations now, nobody's been saying to the American people, here's the danger these terrorists pose. And we've sort of gone on, you know, without getting an attack on the homeland and thinking, well, that's a threat from 20 years ago. We don't have to worry about that anymore. That's exactly right. Here is the challenge. If you are now a junior in college, you were born after 9-11, and you have absolutely no idea what investment it takes in order to maintain your safety. You just don't. You have no idea, and very few people have bothered to try to tell you. So the assumption is, if we are not there, things will be fine, because things are fine now. But you can extrapolate from this. This is my whole beef in foreign policy. It is that nobody bothers to explain to people what world American power has built, economic power, military power, diplomatic power, all of that. And so everybody thinks, oh, no, this is the status quo. This is just how it is. And we just have to go from one schmuck to another in the White House. And it is completely nonsensical. And as a result, we manage from crisis to crisis. We go from an Iranian nuclear program to an invasion to terrorist attacks on us to lone wolf attacks in our country. And everybody just sort of, you know, ho-dee-ho, dum-da-dum, who cares? I don't know no. what we do about this. 
You know, it's funny. I was uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I used to go regularly on 9-11, give a talk to college students about my experience on 9-11 being in the Pentagon when the planes hit and all the rest of it. And I was in front of this audience and realized this was the first group of students who probably had no living memory of the 9-11 attacks themselves. And one of the kids actually came to me afterwards and he said, I don't remember 9-11. I was very little at the time. But my father was a rescue worker at Ground Zero, and what my memory of 9-11 is the smell on his clothes when he came back. That was his visceral memory of the 9-11 attacks. He smelled Ground Zero every day uh, when his father came home from work. We don't even have that connection to 9-11 anymore. It's now become something that we've told our kids about and kids are learning as history. But the people who carried out those attacks are still out there, and the people they trained are still out there. And the reason they haven't succeeded in carrying out another 9-11 is because we have stopped them, because we've deployed forces in, in these countries and, and taken on these missions. And what do people think is going to happen when we pull those troops out? You know, when we go to zero, Afghanistan is going to go back to everything we've, all the blood and treasure we've spent is going to go for nothing because they'll reassert a terrorist safe haven and we won't be able to stop them. And, you know, ISIS will rise its head up again if we pull out completely from Iraq. So we are lucky enough to have a repeat guest and a very dear friend to both you and to me, uh, a great, great uh, American, General Jack Keane. He is a, a great national security mind and advisor to presidents, Republican, Democrat alike. He's a four-star general, former vice chief of staff of the Army, perennial candidate to be secretary of defense and national security advisor, and I wish he'd accepted one of them. We've got Jack Keane with us today. All right, Jack, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, delighted to be here. Well, we want to talk about President Trump's decision on troop drawdowns in Afghanistan and Iraq, but I want to start with a broader question. So next year is going to mark the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks and the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Afghanistan. And I think a lot of our listeners would really appreciate your explanation of 20 years later, why the hell are we still there? Yeah, it's a great question. And we're still there for the very reason we went there to begin with. And that is to make certain that the people that conducted 9-11 don't get the opportunity to do that again. And to be able to do that, we had to depose the Taliban, which we did rather handedly. We took on the al-Qaeda that were willing to take us on. We killed a couple thousand of them in 2002. But the majority of them you know, took refuge, uh, mostly in Pakistan, but not limited to Pakistan. And then we began a series of mistakes that led it to a protracted war, not the least of which is the war in Iraq, and Afghanistan became an economy of force. You know, we never ever put the right forces into Afghanistan to help build a security force that was capable of protecting the regime. And I was involved in an arm twisting with uh, Secretary Rumsfeld over that and lost the argument. And uh, because he considered it nation building, and I said, this is not nation building, this is, this is about security for a, a new government that we put in place. Certainly Iraq distracted us. You know, we never really put consequential forces in there until the end of the Bush administration in 2008. And he was only able to do that because the so-called surge in Iraq had succeeded and it gave us some troops that were not available before that. And then the Obama administration came in. They recognized that 
we needed to conduct counterinsurgency. They recognized the forces were inadequate. So McChrystal and Petraeus came forward, briefed the Obama administration at a National Security Council meeting, and gave them three options which they wanted, 80, 60, and 40,000 each. The 80 was no risk, 60 had some risk, and the 40 was the minimum force required to succeed. Vice President Biden took exception to it, and he recommended 20, and the NSC compromised the 30, which was a 25% reduction in what the campaign called for to be successful. General Petraeus made a statement to the effect, a paraphrase of his comment is, this is not a transportation bill that we're trying to get through the Congress and we're willing to compromise it. We have given you a campaign plan and told you this is what we need to succeed. But that reduction held at uh, 25%, it was introduced by uh, General Jim Jones, if I recall, as the National Security Advisor to uh, get people to agree to it between Biden's 20,000 and the commander's uh, 40,000. That was the increase. That was a surge, right? 30,000 increase in Afghanistan. But because we could not conduct simultaneous operations in eastern Afghanistan as well as southern Afghanistan, because we only had the 30,000, we put the majority of those forces into southern Afghanistan, and we never were able to deal with the Haqqani network in any consequential way in the east. And as a result of it, we knew that war was going to be protracted just on that basis alone. And if you recall, when he made the announcement at West Point that he was increasing and escalating the forces to Afghanistan, he also said that he would pull them out 15 months later, uh, which he did, something which gave the Taliban the opportunity uh, to avoid contact as much as possible knowing full well the Americans were going to leave anyway. So, yeah, U.S. policies protracted this war for 20 years more than anything else. Certainly the Taliban reemerged in 2004 and five because they saw the opportunity. They knew that the, the Karzai government did not have an adequate security force to protect itself, and they knew the Americans were completely distracted by what was taking place in Iraq because they knew then, at that time, that the war in Iraq was going to be protracted for the Americans and they were not going to be able to pull out as they had planned to do a few months after they began the attack. And, of course, the last denominator here that protracted the war is Pakistan providing refuge for the Taliban leadership on much of their forces when they wanted to retire from the battlefield and rehabilitate themselves and reunite with their families and then go back back to the battlefield at a time of their choosing. Mostly U.S. policies have driven this protracted war. So before I hand it to Danny, how many are there now before this latest drawdown? He increased the number of forces when he took over. He made a a, a modest increase in the forces because the commanders were telling him they needed to have some of that. And he willingly did that. And how many now? Right now, we're pretty close down to 4,500. We've come down from 8,000. And the 4,500 is interesting. That is a number that General Scotty Miller, who is, by the way, one of our very best commanders that we've had in Afghanistan, he came up with that number himself with no pressure from anybody else telling him what the number should be. And the number surprised a number of people to include me. And I asked him, because I do have contact with him, I said, Scotty, I mean, that's kind of low. He said, 
general, I, I've done the detailed analysis on this. I've got people here I really don't need. I want to get them out of here because they're not contributing overall to success. It's just nice to have. This is the lowest I can go and still maintain essential missions. What are we talking about? Some representation with the Afghan security forces to assist them on big picture things, but also to help coordinate for the use of air power, which is critical, U.S. air power and also some coalition air power. Second, a significant intelligence capability that exceeds the very good human intelligence that the Afghan security forces provide, but it's our technology and our interaction that has helped us uh, and the work that NSA does that has been instrumental, and then a counterterrorism force. Those are the things he felt he had to have. And at 4,500, he believed that was essential. And that's the number we're at now, pretty close to it. We're coming down from 8,000. And now, of course, we have a new number. 4,500, these numbers are obviously informed by, you know, military calculations about what we need, what we need not just to fight the enemy, but also to support our troops on the ground and to maintain their own security and logistical trains. Okay, why is 2,500 not enough? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. As I mentioned previously, the 4,500 was based on some very detailed analysis by General Miller and, and his command. And I was very impressed with it because I thought the, the number would likely be larger than that, but he, he was adamant that he didn't need the other forces to perform the essential missions. Now, listen, I give the president some credit here for what? I, I give him credit for not pulling out of Afghanistan and because that is what he really wants to do. I know that from my own interactions with him on this subject, and I know as recently as last week, he still wanted to pull out of Afghanistan, and he had people telling him, you know, largely the new people brought into the Pentagon telling him that we can get down to zero. And certainly he was inclined to do that, but he didn't do it. And why is that? Well, because his more established national security team that he has around him, particularly the chairman of Joint Chiefs, uh, Secretary Pompeo, and somewhat National Security Advisor O'Brien, informed him that the conditions were not really favorable to get down to zero. And what am I talking about? Well, first of all, we got negotiations for a peace agreement going on between the Taliban and the government of Afghanistan. Those negotiations are completely stalled. The United States and the government of Afghanistan particularly have wanted the ceasefire prior to going into these negotiations. And that should have taken place as a condition for the negotiations. It did not. And as a result of that, indeed, the Taliban have increased their level of violence 50% against the Afghan security forces. And what that's demonstrating is a lack of seriousness on the part of the Taliban to get a negotiated settlement. So the president was informed of that. The second thing is, and if we pull out completely to zero, will lose any leverage over the Taliban and also undercut the government of Afghanistan. And the other reason is that resident in Afghanistan are Al-Qaeda and ISIS, and there's no demonstrable evidence whatsoever that the Taliban have the political will to do anything that would interfere with the Al-Qaeda's desire to rebuild the sanctuary in Afghanistan, nor do they have the capacity 
to eliminate the ISIS sanctuary that currently exists, and that's based on U.S. military analysis of Taliban's limitations. So you put those two reasons together, and the conditions are not favorable to pull out the zero. So we did not pull out the zero, but how did we get at 2,500? Well, that was just an arbitrary number, not based on any informed analysis from Afghanistan and the military commanders there arriving at 2,500. I'm, I'm speculating to show the fact that while the president is not getting out of Afghanistan as he promised, he's willing to further reduce our forces. And it would be far better if we just held at the 4,500, which is a very solid number in terms of what, is, what the capabilities are. I just don't understand the president's desire to get to zero. I mean, I, under, I would understand if we had hundreds of thousands of troops or even, you know, many tens of thousands of troops deployed there for 20 years and we were engaged in policing and nation building and all the rest of it. We've got a small number of troops, far fewer than we have in Korea, far fewer than we have in Germany, far fewer than we have in Italy. And they're not policing Afghanistan. They're not nation building. They're whacking terrorists, right? I mean, is that basically yeah. what we're doing at this point? I totally agree with that assessment, Mark. I mean... I've been frustrated by this myself. I've had uh, discussions with the president over this issue and also in keeping forces uh, in Syria. And the way I've tried to approach it is, one, we've always kept forces post-conflict, and you just mentioned it. In Europe, Germany, Italy, in South Korea, in Japan, gee, we, we have 40,000 in Japan, and even in uh, in Eastern Europe, we still have forces there post-peace uh, settlement deal in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And we've done that to uh, help to achieve a level of stability. And I said, we do have a presence in Afghanistan of terrorists that can harm the United States. And we have selected four or five places uh, as a result of national security decision-making by the National Command Authority to conduct direct action against the al-Qaeda in Yemen, the ISIS and al-Qaeda affiliates in Eastern Africa, all for the same reason, because they have out-of-region aspirations to hurt Americans, against ISIS in Eastern Syria and also in Western Syria. And we want to maintain a presence in Iraq, less for military reasons, but more for political reasons to give the government of, of Iraq some leverage to push back against the Iranians' desire to unduly influence them. And we have a government there that is interested in that. And one of the main reasons why we kept forces in the post those other conflicts for political stability. And then we come to Afghanistan. Well, in talking to the president, we're in Afghanistan with a modest amount of forces because we know for a fact that if al-Qaeda establishes sanctuary again, and they're not that far away. They're just across the border in Pakistan. They want to come back in Afghanistan because it's the best place on the planet, you know, to put a terrorist organization up in the mountains and provide it geographic and topographical protection that is very hard to provide in other places. So it's a natural environment for that. The amount of forces that we're using in these four or five encounters is so modest and multiple presidents have agreed that this is a, an appropriate course of action. So it's very frustrating that that logic doesn't hold and recognize that this is essential 
And it, what an insurance policy it is to protect the American people. Jack, I have two follow-up questions for you on that. The first is political, and the second is actually about the strategic demands that are on us to remain in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. The first, the political question. The reality is that while I disagree with Donald Trump on this, the person who doesn't disagree with him is Joe Biden. Part of the Democrat platform was to withdraw all of our troops from all of these theaters immediately. What is going on with, you know, this isn't a Republican problem. This isn't a Democratic problem. This is an American problem. What's going on with these guys? What I understand Biden's position to be, and I can only speak to Afghanistan, is that he's advocating that we maintain a small residual force there because of the counterterrorism mission. So I think if that is indeed the case, he is likely in agreement it may not be at the 2500 level, but he's likely in, a, in an agreement that he's willing to listen to what the military commanders believe would be the essential force to be able to accomplish that mission. That's what I think is happening, at least with Afghanistan. I can't speak to the other. I mean, it's, it's somewhat shameful that we haven't, in this entire campaign that, that we just completed a couple of weeks ago, that national security and foreign policy hasn't even come close to being addressed adequately in the campaign and not even in the debate. That's completely right. Look, we've known this before. You know, national security matters when people die. And unfortunately, in, uh, preventing people from dying is, doesn't rise to the level of a presidential campaign. Another question for you that I don't understand, and this is a setup because you know what I think and I know what you think, but I still think it's worth pulling this thread. News reports suggested that Donald Trump's advisors had to talk him out of attacking Iran prior to the transition to a new president in January. At the same time, if you ask yourself who benefits most from an American withdrawal from Iraq, from Syria, and from Afghanistan, the biggest beneficiary of this is Iran and their allies and their proxies and their forces. Do you, in talking to the president, have any understanding of why he doesn't see that? I don't know the answers to all of that, but here's what I do know. I completely agree that Iran, who has the United States on their western border in Iraq and the United States on their eastern border in Afghanistan, has always wanted it as a major objective to get us out of there. They really cannot accomplish the domination and control that they want to have of the region as long as the United States is there. And that's why they began a campaign to kill us back in the early 1980s by blowing up our embassies and blowing up our barracks and etc. to drive us out of the region. So yes, strategically, that is a major objective of theirs. And at times it appears like we're falling right in to their hands and, you know, giving them a gift where you don't have to give them. And it's, it's part of my frustration. Dealing with what has happened recently on Iran, from the perspective that I have is that as a result of the recent IAEA report that dramatized that the Iranians were increasing the amount of enriched uranium and therefore the use of advanced centrifuges to achieve it, had grown somewhat substantially over where it was. They identified it as about 12 times as much, not near weaponization yet, but getting close to 
a point where the pathway to weaponization would be dramatically reduced. So the, the report on the surface of it gave people some concerns. The only thing that I can say with certainty on this is that when the president met with his advisors and they took him through options against the Iranians, and, you know, we take commander-in-chief and presidents through options, you know, routinely. It's not unusual to do that. But as all those options were being considered, the kinetic options dealing with some type of air or missile strike at the Iranians uh, was dismissed as, as not a viable option for all the obvious reasons. It would likely, at least at this time, lead to uh, a war with Iran. And then other options dealing with offensive cyber and uh, espionage campaigns. I don't know where we are on those. I do know that we have had success with offensive cyber against the Iranians in their nuclear enterprise going back a number of years. And also, we have used offensive cyber against them, as the president admitted uh, with Mark in an interview with him in the 2018 election. And the director of Cyber Command just admitted a week or two ago that they've had some success in offensive cyber against the Iranians in this election campaign. So I, I'm convinced, and we use offensive cyber after the drone attack when we decided not to do a kinetic attack when they shot down our American drone. So I would suspect that offensive cyber may be something that's on the agenda. And we know that there's dozens of explosions of plants and fires in plants throughout Iran, and most notably at Natanz, which is a uranium centrifuge nuclear enterprise, and also at a missile production facility. And it certainly is alleged that the Mossad, who takes up residence in Tehran, is doing that in concert with uh, an Iranian resistant group or groups. So it's not much of a stretch to think that the United States may indeed be working on something with the Israelis to deal with this growing nuclear threat without using a kinetic means to solve that problem. So, Jack, you raised the uh, what happened to the uh, al-Qaeda leader in Tehran. I think a lot of Americans would be surprised to learn that there are al-Qaeda leaders in Tehran and that they're getting sanctuary and that there's in fact actually an al-Qaeda cell there, which is probably the only one in the world that hasn't been uh, under the threat of drone strikes or other kinetic action. What's the relationship there? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Uh, when we killed those uh, al-Qaeda guys in 2002 up in the mountains, you know, many of them did flee. And some of them, not nearly as many as gone other places, certainly Pakistan being the number one place, but some of them did go into Iran. And the Iranians recognize who they are, and, and they have had a strange relationship. I mean, Iran is a Shiite, theocracy and the al-Qaeda are Sunni jihadists and you know and these two groups don't get along and they did they have not gotten along and in Afghanistan they they didn't get along and they actually fought each other a little bit so why did they go there and we're talking about a pretty capable guy in terms of al-Masri is the name he's using at the time he's the he was in charge of all training for the al-Qaeda and he ran their African operation he's responsible for taking down the two embassies in 1998 in Kenya and Tanzania. He was one of the eight original founders of Al-Qaeda. So this, is, this guy's a big deal, and now he's 
after Osama bin Laden was killed, he's, he's number two in the organization. When they went in there, the Iranians put them under house arrest. They knew who they are, and they wanted to control them. And so what was the motivation, and where are the Iranians coming out on that? I think that I haven't read anything in the intelligence circles, and, and if I did, I, I wouldn't be able to talk about it. But I can just <laughs> do speculation on my own that the Masri certainly wanted to go to Iran, and hopefully uh, he probably had done some prior coordination, knowing that they weren't going to put him in a jailhouse and torture them, that that would be a great place to go because the Americans would have a lot more difficulty tracking him down and killing him as the Americans, you know, they believe fully intended to do in Pakistan. And obviously we did a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what's the Iranians' interest? Why are they bringing people in here they really don't get along with? Well, I think it's obvious uh, they have a common enemy. And if uh, Masri and the boys are going to plan an attack and have a successful attack against Americans, either in the region or outside the region, that's in their interest. Secondly, it also provides a guarantor that the al-Qaeda are not going to do anything against the Iranians. Uh, because when you have somebody you know, so high in their leadership that is there and, and other assistants, and you know, as you know, for a time there, uh, he had you know, Osama bin Laden's son there with him before yeah. he was killed. So that yeah, it's strange bedfellows, there's no doubt about it. But the fact that the Mossad took them down is just further evidence. Uh, they have an operational capability that I'm convinced that is permanently in Tehran largely and maybe some safe houses outside of it. I mean, they went into that warehouse in, in Tehran in January 2018, and they didn't take a briefcase full of information out of there. This is a classified warehouse that these guys broke into. They took truckloads of stuff out of there and managed to get it out of Tehran all the way back into Israel for uh, documentation uh, exploitation. An enormous undertaking, as you can imagine. Uh, these guys know what they're doing. If they need to kill somebody inside Tehran, they've got the capability to do that, and they just demonstrated it once again. They did a lot of that, by the way, with uh, Iranian nuclear scientists. I think they've killed over a dozen of them using the, the same technique, uh, guys on motorcycles shooting in the cars. I'd watch that movie, that's for sure. Uh, so uh, so my exit question for you, Jack, let's play this forward. I'm really hoping that, you know, we slow roll the withdrawal of our forces, that we keep sufficient guys on the ground in order to ensure support for our allies and our own national security. But let's just say this goes forward. What's going to happen in the next year? Yeah, uh, the Biden people, by and large, agree with the strategic framework that Trump established. You know, big power competition, China, Russia, China being the longest strategic threat, two regional powers, you know, causing huge problems, North Korea brandishing the use of nuclear weapons. uh, And even though that, that rhetoric has gone down and so is the testing, it remains to be seen what happens next. And Iran a regional power who wants nuclear weapons but has caused huge problems in the Middle East and attempting to destabilize and gain uh, geopolitical control and the generational problem with radical Islam. They sort of buy into that, but it's the execution of it where the differences will be. I think in the time allowed, uh, you know, we can go into every one of them, and that's, that's a separate podcast, but I think the area where the Biden administration will be the most vulnerable 
will be in dealing with Iran and the Middle East. And I just hope they appreciate the strategic contours that are taking place since the five years when the nuclear deal was their seminal objective in terms of a foreign policy goal, such a flawed deal, and how all the Arabs and the Israelis didn't want any part of that, and how much the Iranians have used the money that they got from that, 140 to $150 billion in sanction relief, not poured back into their economy to stimulate and help the people, but poured back to flush out and fuel the civil wars in Syria and Yemen, buying missiles for Hezbollah and Hamas, and all of their other malign activity has helped to forge this geopolitical paradigm shift in the Middle East, which is a generational issue with the Arabs and the Israelis, and it's growing into a much broader coalition, something we've talked about for years as some kind of an Arab NATO that would involve the Israelis and the United States as well as the Arabs. Well, we're moving in that direction. And the catalyst, indeed, is the Iranians. And I just hope the Biden administration appreciates what is taking place here, and they just don't knee-jerk themselves back into the nuclear deal as if nothing has changed since 2015. That would be a strategic blunder. And I just hope they pay attention and listen, even to the Trump guys going out the door, which they may not pay much attention to, but certainly to the Arabs and the Israelis in the region. Well, uh, you know, Joe Biden is known for strategic blunders. I think uh, Robert Gates says he's literally gotten every every major foreign policy issue wrong <laughs> in his entire political career. So I don't put it past him to have that blunder. Jack, you, as always, you've been so edifying and you're such a great friend to come on the podcast. We appreciate you. I understand the desire to end endless wars. But the enemy gets a vote. We don't get to choose when the war ends. They, they haven't stopped hating us. They haven't stopped their desire to kill us. The only reason they haven't done it in the scale that they desire is because we've prevented them. So when we stop preventing them, they're going to succeed. I guess everybody is willing to take that risk. And I mean, I think that that at the end of the day is the issue. I was ta teaching my class about the Patriot Act. And, you know, everybody looks at the Patriot Act and they're amazed at the kind of civil liberties that people are willing to sacrifice in order to enhance our national security. And the answer is you just, you can't imagine what you're willing to do in the wake of the murder of 3,000 of your fellow citizens. You can't imagine. We need to be shown again and again and again and again. And I would argue that if the things that were going on these days had been going on 25 years ago, we would have been much less willing to tolerate them. You know, if you raise the question of the Orlando Pulse nightclub attack and the murder of dozens of people in a nightclub in the United States by an Islamist terrorist bent on, you know, murdering, not simply murdering uh, Westerners uh, at play, but murdering gay Westerners at play, the nation would have risen up in horror and anger and look for reasons and look to stop it. And now it's just like, oh, I'm sorry, that doesn't belong on page one after the second day. At the time, 9-11 was unthinkable that anyone could do something like that to us. And now they've done it. And it's happened. And it's part of our history, right? And so people think, well, that's the worst that could possibly happen. And it's not. Joe Biden keeps referring to talking about COVID that we're entering a dark winter. That phrase actually comes from an exercise that was done about a, a smallpox attack on the United States. 
it was a military exercise that was done. And there was actually a video put up about it. And it was, what would a smallpox attack do in terms of shutting down the country, in terms of causing economic disruption, unemployment, mass casualties, and all the rest of it? And we've just basically experienced, you know, it's different because it was a virus that China let get free as opposed to intentionally inflicted on us. But it was basically we've suffered a biological attack on this country where we've been attacked by a virus that was let loose. And terrorists look at that, just the destruction to our economy, the destruction to our way of life, the millions of, of jobs lost, the, the hundreds of thousands of people killed, and they look at that and say, hey, that's pretty cool. They have an aspiration to get biological weapons, and they have an aspiration to get chemical weapons and even nuclear weapons. And they look at 9-11 as like the floor, not the ceiling. And we've just had a demonstration of what could happen to our country if someone someone intentionally did something like release a virus into our into our society. So, you know, we 9-11 was a failure of imagination. Why did we not anticipate it? it was a failure of imagination that we didn't just like Pearl Harbor was a failure of imagination. We just never imagined the Japanese would strike us here at home. And we're now, you know, the fact that we're fighting over, you know, zero or 2,500 or 4,500 troops is going to look ridiculous if we have another failure of imagination like that and they carry out something far worse than 9-11, which they are more than capable of doing. Okay, so one last point, and that is the whole notion that we need to focus on Iran, that the President of the United States reportedly considered a military strike on Iran prior to January 20th, and at the same time is doing the biggest favor he could possibly do, which is drawing out our troops from Iran's most important arenas of engagement, Syria, Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, has nobody told Donald Trump this? Apparently not. Or if they have, he's not <laughs> listening. Talk about cutting off your nose to spite your face. The, the great success that Donald Trump has had has been really in pushing back Iran into its borders. Not entirely. Fueled by the money from the Iran nuclear deal, they were on a rampage across the Middle East when Donald Trump came into office four years ago. And he has imposed such crippling sanctions on them that their resources just aren't there to do what they were doing in the same way. And that fact and that pushback on the Iran and that containment of Iran and taking out Soleimani that sent shockwaves through Tehran, that has given the confidence to our Arab allies in the Persian Gulf to start making peace with Israel, right? So it's literally transformed the region to pull out our troops now, which is, as you say, is a favor to Iran, would undermine that. And to re-enter the Iran nuclear deal and start giving, lifting all those sanctions and, and letting them build up the resources would also do that. So there's a lot at stake here because really the Trump administration is one of the, its great successes has been forging the first Arab-Israeli peace in a quarter century. And I don't think that anyone's connected the dots the way you just have to the fact that, that you, want, you want to undermine that. A good way to do it is to pull out of Afghanistan and Iraq. I know it. I hope that in their final moments of courage, the few national security officials that haven't been axed actually have the guts to stand up and tell a little truth to power rather than running to the newspapers to salvage their own sorry reputations. You know, I hope that's what some of them will, will do in the final weeks of the Trump administration. Well, on that hopeful note. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in. Complaints to Mark Thiessen. Compliments to Danny Fletka. 
technical complaints and flattery to Alexa Santry and wishing all of you a very, very happy and healthy and safe Thanksgiving with your loved ones. We'll be back next Socially week. Socially distant. <laughs> no singing, please. Not if you're in California. And, and make sure uh, to put your mask on between bites. <laughs> Safety, people. Safety. <laughs> and we'll be back next week. Take care. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.